Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Mason City Grove Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger for Friday, December 15, 2023. I'm your reader, Mary Francis, and you are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. Looking at the uh, front page of the Globe Gazette, I can tell you that on the front page and throughout the paper, there isn't uh, one local story in today's edition. And generally, we try to read the local stuff first, but there is exactly nothing as far as local stories go today. So we'll do national. Uh, On the front page of the Globe Gazette, Large headline saying Congress passes defense bill. And then the second story on the front page is GOP presidential hopefuls will not condemn abortion law. So we'll start with um, the defense bill story. And it shows a photo, um, large photo, um, spreading the width of the entire page. And it shows the U.S. Capitol and a member of the National Guard patrolling the Capitol. Um, And this picture was taken February 10th, 2021. And the copy reads, Lawmakers depart D.C. without approving spending for Ukraine. This is from the Associated Press. The House passed a defense policy Thursday, policy bill Thursday, that authorizes the biggest pay raise for troops in more than two decades, overcoming objections from some conservatives concerned the measure did not do enough to restrict the Pentagon's diversity initiatives, abortion travel policy, and gender-affirming health care for transgender service members. The $886 billion bill was approved by a vote of 310 to 118 and now goes to President Joe Biden after the Senate overwhelmingly passed it Wednesday. It is likely the last piece of major legislation Congress will consider before leaving for the holiday break. Lawmakers departed Washington on Thursday without a deal to pass wartime support for Ukraine, even as Biden's administration raced to negotiate with Senate Republicans, who demand changes to U.S. border security policy in return. The Senate planned to come back next week in hopes of finalizing a deal to place new restrictions on asylum claims at the U.S. border and pass the $110 billion uh, package of aid for Ukraine Israel, and other national security needs. But the House showed no sign of returning to push the legislation through the full Congress. Thursday's spending bill represents about a 3% increase from the prior year. The bill serves as a blueprint for programs Congress will seek to fund through follow-up spending bills. Lawmakers have been negotiating a final defense policy bill for months after each chamber passed strikingly different versions in July. Some of the priorities championed by social conservatives were a no-go for Democrats. Negotiators dropped them from the final version to get it over the finish line. That did not go over well with some Republican lawmakers, though most voted for the bill, which traditionally has broad bipartisan support. About twice as many Republicans voted for the bill as voted against it. Washington Representative Adam Smith, ranking Democrat on the House Armed Services Committee chided the bill's critics for what he described as an unwillingness to compromise. Quote, apparently you don't like democracy because that's what democracy is. You compromise and you work with people and you do it all the time, Smith said. 
Most notably, the bill does not include language sought by House Republicans to restrict gender-affirming health care for transgender service members, and it does not block the Pentagon's abortion travel policy, which allows reimbursement for travel expenses when a service member has to go out of state for an abortion or other reproductive care. Republicans won some concessions on diversity and inclusion training in the military. For example, the bill freezes hiring for such training until a full accounting of the programming and costs are completed and reported to Congress. One of the most divisive aspects of the bill was a short-term extension of a surveillance program aimed at preventing terrorism and catching spies. That program has detractors on both sides of the political aisle who view it as a threat to the privacy of ordinary Americans. Some House Republicans were incensed that the extension was included in the defense policy bill and not voted on separately through other legislation that included proposed changes to Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA. The extension continues a tool that permits the U.S. government, without a warrant, to collect communications of non-Americans located outside the country to gather foreign intelligence. U.S. officials say the tool, first authorized in 2008 and renewed several times since then, is crucial in disrupting terror attacks, cyber intrusions, and other national security threats. But the administration's efforts to secure reauthorization of the program encountered strong bipartisan pushback. Lawmakers demand better privacy protections for those Americans caught up in the monitoring. They wanted a separate vote on legislation making changes to the program. Quote, the FBI under President Biden has been weaponized against the American people and major reform is needed, said Rep. Representative Matt Rosendale, a Republican of Montana. The quote continues, FISA should not be combined with our national defense, and it is unacceptable that leadership is bypassing regular order to jam members by forcing them to vote on two unrelated bills with one vote. Matthew G. Olson, an assistant attorney general at the Justice Department, praised the passage of the extension. Quote, we cannot afford to be blinded to the many threats we face from foreign adversaries, including Iran and China, as well as terrorist organizations like Hamas and ISIS, or the Islamic State group, he said. On Ukraine, the bill includes the creation of a special inspector general for Ukraine to address concerns about whether taxpayer dollars are being spent in Ukraine as intended. That's on top of oversight work already being conducted by other agency watchdogs. Ukraine's supporters in Congress argue that Kiev now could prevent a wider war if Russia were to invade a member of NATO, the military alliance that maintains that an attack against one member nation is considered an attack against all. Our next story from the Associated Press, GOP presidential hopefuls will not condemn abortion law. Some 2024 candidates call for compassion in Texas case, but do not criticize the state's rules. Uh, This is from the Associated Press. Some of the Republicans seeking their party's 2024 presidential nomination have said the case of a Texas woman whose health deteriorated as she unsuccessfully sought an abortion should be handled with, quote, compassion, but they did not criticize the state's law. In the 
It's the latest indication that the candidates see the politics surrounding abortion as a delicate and fraught issue for the GOP after the Supreme Court's reversal of constitutional protections for the procedure helped power Democrats to unexpectedly strong performances in the 2022 midterms. While campaigning Tuesday, both former United Nations Ambassador Nikki Haley and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis expressed sympathy for Kate Cox, a mother of two who sought an abortion after learning the baby she was carrying had a fatal genetic condition and suffering health complications of her own. The state Supreme Court denied her request for an exemption from Texas's ban, one of the most restrictive in the U.S., and Cox left the state to seek an abortion elsewhere. Asked about Cox's case at a CNN town hall, DeSantis, who signed a six-week ban in his state this year, said, These are very difficult issues. And pointing to Florida's exceptions, allowing abortions when the mother's life is in danger, for a, quote, fatal fetal abnormality. We have to approach these issues with compassion, said DeSantis, though there have been reports in Florida of women who have not been able to obtain abortions under the exception because their doctors, facing steep penalties if they were wrong, were unwilling to perform the procedure. The window of time for women to make the wrenching choice is also limited. Haley also spoke of compassion and suggested Texas Medical Board review Medical Board review the case, but she notably did not call for the law to be changed. Quote, you know I'm pro-life. I welcome the states that have become pro-life, but this is exactly why I've said you have to show compassion and humanize the situation, said Haley, who signed abortion restrictions after about 20 weeks into law as the South Carolina governor in 2016. Her quote continues, We don't want any women to sit there and deal with a rare situation and have to deliver a baby in that sort of circumstance any more than we want women getting an abortion at 37, 38, 39 weeks, which is a rare occurrence, and it's generally due to grave medical complications. President Joe Biden has called the Texas ruling simply outrageous and said what happened to Cox should never happen in America, period. Many Republican lawmakers, meanwhile, are reluctant to stake out clear positions on what restrictions they support, including bans on abortion, even when doctors determine a pregnancy is not viable and a baby will not survive outside the womb. Much of that reluctance may be due to public sentiment, which favors abortion rights. An Associated Press NORC Center for Public Affairs research poll this summer found that about two-thirds of Americans said abortion should generally be legal. Voters either affirmed abortion access or turned back attempts to undermine it in all seven states, where the question has been on the ballot since Roe v. Wade's reversal. Former New York, or excuse me, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie was alone among the 220, 2024 Republican candidates in declaring that the Texas Supreme Court erred in denying the abortion. He said Texas legislators should change their law. Quote, I think the Texas Supreme Court was wrong, and I think that in a situation like this, you're not protecting any life because the child clearly has been diagnosed with having a fatal illness, Christie told the Associated Press on Wednesday. He continued, so all you're doing is putting the life of the mother at risk, 
by making her carry it to term, unquote. Former President Donald Trump, who has taken credit for appointing the Supreme Court justices who helped overturn national abortion protections, has not issued a statement on the Texas case, and his campaign did not respond to messages inquiring about his stance. Another GOP presidential candidate, biotech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, has not spoken out about Cox's case. He said in a video on social media Tuesday night that the Supreme Court was correct to overturn Roe, that states should decide their own abortion restrictions, and that Republicans should campaign on the idea of sexual responsibility for men by allowing any woman who carries a pregnancy to term to legally make the father solely responsible for caring for the child. Cox's case and others like hers, quote, prove exceptions don't exist in reality, said Angela vasquez Garo, who is vice president of communications and research for the national group Reproductive Freedom for All. Quote, if politicians like DeSantis and Haley really believed in exceptions and in compassion, they would have been fighting to find ways to work with doctors to clarify these laws and to help people facing these nightmare situations in their own states to access care, she said. They threw compassion out the window the moment they signed these bans. And turning to page two, and a reminder that there is no local news in the Gazette today, so it's all pretty much national. Poland marks Hanukkah after menorah attack. Dateline Warsaw, the stories from the Associated Press. Top Polish leaders joined members of the Jewish community for a Hanukkah celebration in Parliament Thursday after a far-right lawmaker used a fire extinguisher to put out burning candles on a menorah earlier this week. The attendance of the President, Speaker of Parliament, and other top legislative officials sent the message that there is no tolerance in Poland for the kind of anti-Semitic behavior that erupted in Parliament Halls Tuesday, shocking the country and drawing widespread widespread condemnation across the political spectrum. A woman was injured in the incident and was still in a hospital two days later. Rabbi Shalom Verstambler of the Shabbat community, who has organized the Hanukkah event in Parliament for the 17th straight year, said, We will dispel darkness through light. And we're lucky that a little light can dispel a lot of darkness. President uh, A-N-D-R-Z-E-J Duda stood by a large menorah as the Parliament Speaker Simone Halonia lit a candle, with Jewish community members lighting the others on the eighth and last night of the Jewish Festival of Lights. They are among the highest leaders in Poland. The other top leader, Prime Minister Donald Tusk, was in Brussels for a European Union Union summit. He also strongly denounced the earlier anti-Semitic incident. This is the true face of Poland. The country's U.S.-born chief rabbi, Michael Shudrick, said, We are all together. Gregor's Braun is a lawmaker on the extreme right fringe who is considered one of the most controversial officials in Poland. On Tuesday, he grabbed a red fire extinguisher and extinguished the candles on a menorah that were lit for Hanukkah. He created a disruption and scandal as a new pro-EU government was beginning its work. A Jewish community member tried to stop him, and he reacted by spraying her with the extinguisher chemical. 
Braun, who is a member of the Confederation Party, has in the past falsely claimed that there is a plot to turn Poland into a Jewish state. In May, he violently disrupted a lecture by a Holocaust scholar, Jan Grabowski, at the German Historical Institute in Warsaw. He grabbed the historian's microphone and banged it on the lectern before going to a loudspeaker, hitting it and knocking it over. He was banned from the Parliament building on Thursday. Poland was once home to a large Jewish community that numbered 3.5 million on the eve of the Holocaust. Almost all of Poland's Jews were murdered by the Nazi German forces that occupied Poland in World War II. And turning the page to nation and world. Official, official expects long war. U.S. Security Advisor meets with leaders to discuss a timetable. And this is from uh, Associated Press, Deadline, or Dateline Tel Aviv. Israel's defense minister said Thursday it will take months to destroy Hamas, predicting a drawn-out war even as his country and its top ally, the United States, face increasing international isolation and alarm over the devastation from the campaign in Gaza. Yoav Gallant's comments came as U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan met with Israeli leaders to discuss a timetable for winding down major combat in Gaza. Israeli leaders repeated their determination to pursue the military assault until they crushed the militant group for its October 7 attack. The exchange, the exchange seemed to continue a dynamic the two allies have been locked in for weeks. President Joe Biden's administration has shown unease over Israel's failure to reduce civilian casualties and its plans for the future of Gaza. But the White House continues to offer wholehearted support for Israel with weapons, shipments, and diplomatic backing. Quote, I want them to be focused on how to save civilian lives, Biden said Thursday, when asked if he wants Israel to scale down its operations by the end of the month. Quote, not stop going after Hamas, but be more careful, unquote. Aside from small adjustments, Israel has changed little in what has been one of the 21st century's most devastating military campaigns with a mounting death toll. Meanwhile, Israel's president joined other high-ranking Israeli officials in speaking out against a two-state solution after the war in Gaza. In an interview with the Associated Press on Thursday, Isaac Herzog said, it is not the time to talk about establishing an independent Palestinian state when the country's pain from Hamas's October 7 attack is still fresh. What I want to urge is against just saying two-state solution. Why? Because there is an emotional chapter here that must be dealt with. My nation is bereaving. My nation is in trauma, said Herzog. The Biden administration has said that after the war, efforts must be renewed to restart the negotiations aimed at establishing a Palestinian state alongside Israel and other, or under the leadership rather, of the Palestinian Authority. Herzog, whose position is largely ceremonial, is a former leader of Israel's Labor Party, which advocates for a two-state solution with the Palestinians. The Prime Minister of the Palestinian Authority, uh, Mohammed Shataya, said it's time for the United States to deal more firmly with Israel, particularly on Washington's calls for 
post-war negotiations for a two-state solution. Our next story, there's a large photo. The headline is, Putin says Russia will not yield. And the photo caption shows activists holding signs. The signs are in Ukrainian, but they read, Money for the Ukrainian Armed Forces. And this is during a protest outside City Hall in Kiev um, on Thursday. And again, the headline reads, Putin says Russia will not yield. Citizen protests in Kiev to allocate more money toward military efforts. It's from the Associated Press, Dateline Moscow. Emboldened by battlefield gains and flagging Western support for Ukraine, President Vladimir Putin said Thursday that there will be no peace until Russia achieves its goals, which he says remain unchanged after nearly two years of fighting. It was Putin's first formal news conference that Western media were allowed to attend since the Kremlin sent troops into Ukraine in February of 2022. The highly choreographed session, which lasted more than four hours, was more about spectacle than scrutiny. While using the show as an opportunity to reinforce his authority ahead of an election in March that he's all but certain to win, Putin also gave a few rare details on what Moscow calls its special military operation in Ukraine. He said a steady influx of volunteers means there is no need for a second wave of mobilization of reservists to fight in Ukraine, a move that was deeply unpopular. He said there are some 617,000 Russian soldiers there, including about 244,000 troops who were mobilized a year ago to fight alongside professional forces. Quote, there will be peace when we achieve our goals, Putin said, repeating a frequent Kremlin line that reads, victory will be ours. Meanwhile, hundreds of protesters angered by what they view as wasteful spending by municipal officials gathered outside Kiev City Hall on Thursday and demanded that the money should go to Ukraine's war against Russia instead of to local projects. The money for the Armed Armed Forces of Ukraine Civic Group, which organized the protest, was formed in September by people concerned by what they term unnecessary and poorly timed spending by the Kiev City Council. Protesters chanted, It's better to buy drones than build a new park, and the more money we spend on the army, the faster Ukraine will win this war. Street protests in Ukraine were rare after Russia's full-scale invasion in February of 2022, which brought regular bombardment of the capital. Recently, though, demonstrations gathered momentum, and and Thursday's protest was the largest so far over municipal spending. Municipal graft was regarded as a deep problem in Kiev before the war. Corruption allegations have dogged Ukraine as it has received billions of dollars of Western support for its war effort. And column on the left, we've got the digest on the Nation and World page. EU leaders fail to agree on $55 billion aid for Ukraine. Dateline Brussels. European Union leaders failed to agree on a $55 billion aid package for Ukraine and on the renegotiation of the EU budget, EU Council President Charles Michael said late Thursday. The financial package could not be endorsed by all 27 leaders who earlier Thursday agreed to open membership negotiations with Ukraine. The money is aimed at helping the war-torn country 
weather the Russian invasion. The EU decided earlier Thursday to open accession negotiations with accession, I'm not sure, A-C-C-E-S-S-I-O-N, anyway, to open accession negotiations with Ukraine, a stunning reversal for a country at war, the struggle to find the backing for its membership aspirations, and long-faced obstinate opposition from Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban. Our next brief, Giuliani jurors weigh Georgia election damages. Dateline, Washington. Jurors began deliberating Thursday to decide how much Rudy Giuliani must pay two former Georgia election workers for spreading lies about them that led to a barrage of racist threats and offended their daily their lives. The jury left for the day without announcing a decision and were expected to resume deliberations at Washington's federal courthouse on Friday morning. Wandrea Shea Moss and her mother, Ruby Freeman, are seeking tens of millions of dollars in damages over Giuliani's false claims, accusing them of ballot fraud, while the former New York City mayor was fighting to keep Republican Donald Trump in the White House after the November 2020 election was won by Democrat Joe Biden. The potential hefty damages come at the same time that Giuliani is gearing up to defend himself against criminal charges stemming from his legal representation of Trump. And then another three little bullets under briefly 2024 ballot. The Michigan Court of Appeals said Thursday it will not stop former President Donald Trump from appearing on the state's 2024 Republican primary ballot, rejecting challenges from critics who say his role in the 2021 Capitol attack disqualifies him under the Constitution's insurrection clause. Our next bullet, mortgage rates. The average long-term U.S. mortgage rate dropped below 7% to its lowest level since early August, said mortgage buyer Freddie Mac. Uh, That's another boost for prospective home buyers. Next bullet, Santos seat. Republicans picked Nassau County lawmaker and former Israeli paratrooper Mazi Pilip, or Polip, as their candidate against Democratic ex-Republican Tom Zuwazi in a February 13 special election to replace ousted New York Congressman George Santos. E-Sig seizure. U.S. agents recently seized more than 1.4 million deliberately mislabeled and illegal e-cigarettes valued at $18 million from overseas manufacturers, including the Chinese company behind Elf Bar, Food and Drug Administration officials said Thursday. Shooting plot. A 13-year-old Canton, Ohio boy was charged with allegedly posting plans for a mass shooting of a Jewish synagogue on the online platform Discord. Um, That's according to court documents released Thursday. And jailed Americans. Russian President Vladimir Putin said Thursday. Moscow is in a dialogue with the United States on the issue of bringing home jailed Americans Paul Whelan and Evan Gershkovich, and the Kremlin hopes to, quote, find a solution. Our next story, older Americans to pay less for some medication, government to charge drug makers if costs exceed rate of inflation. This is from the Associated Press, Dateline, Washington. Hundreds of thousands of older Americans could pay less for some of their outpatient drug treatments 
Beginning early next year, the Biden administration said Thursday, the White House unveiled a list of 48 drugs, from chemotherapy treatments to growth hormones, used to uh, treat endocrine disorders, whose prices increased faster than the rate of inflation this year. Under a new law, drug makers would have to pay rebates to the federal government because of those price increases. The money will be used to lower the price Medicare enrollees pay on those drugs early next year. For years, there's been no check on how high or how fast Big Pharma can raise drug prices, President Joe Biden said Thursday, speaking in Bethesda, Maryland. Let's call this for what it is. It's simply a ripoff. This is the first time drug makers will have to pay the penalties for outpatient drug treatments under the Inflation Reduction Act, which Congress passed last year. The rebates will translate into a wide range of savings, from as little as $1 to as much as $2,700 on the drugs that the White House estimates are used every year by 750,000 older Americans. Next story, appeals court upholds Trump gag order again. The former president wants to complain about court employees. This is from the Associated Press, Dateline, New York. A New York appeals court has again upheld a gag order that bars Donald Trump from commenting about court personnel in his civil fraud trial. The ruling Thursday, uh, ruling Thursday that the former president's lawyers used the wrong legal mechanism to fight the restriction. A four-judge panel in the state's mid-level appellate court ruled Thursday that Trump's lawyers erred by suing trial judge Arthur Engeron, who imposed the gag order in October after Trump disparaged his law clerk. Instead, the appellate judges wrote, Trump's lawyers should have followed the normal appeals process by asking Engeron to reverse the order and then, if denied, if denied, fighting that decision on a higher court, in a higher court. The appeals court ruling came a day after testimony wrapped up in the two-and-a-half-month trial. Closing arguments are scheduled for January 11th in the case. Engeron said he hopes to have a verdict by the end of January. Engeron imposed the gag order October 3rd, after Trump, the leading contender for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination, posted a derogatory comment about the judge's law clerk to social media. And there's the halfway point of the reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger for Friday, uh, December 15th, 2023. You are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. I will um, switch over to the Fort Dodge Messenger now. Not a lot of local content here, but I'll give you what we've got. Um, a fresh story from yesterday is called Local Leaders Envision the Future of Calhoun County. And this is from Darcy Darty Malsby of The Messenger, Dateline Rockwell City. Strategic planning means bringing the future into the present so you can do something about it now. That's true in Calhoun County, where 16 participants gathered recently to discuss what's working and develop goals for future economic development in 2024 and beyond. Quote, our state offers an Iowa nice culture and the ability to pursue the American dream, said Shelley Greving, owner of Emerge Marketing Solutions in Manning, which helps revitalize rural Iowa. The quote continues, 
Calhoun County can capitalize on this and build on what's working. Greving and her team led the four-hour strategic planning event, which included small business owners, educators, a healthcare administrator, CEOs, agriculture professionals, county supervisor, and other local leaders. As these leaders worked in small groups to assess what's working in Calhoun County, their lists included, and here are some bullet points, attracting younger people back to Calhoun County, expanding broadband connectivity to more communities in Calhoun County, a thriving ag sector, safe, secure communities, amenities like Twin Lakes, which is one of only two walled glacial blue lakes in Iowa and includes the new Lakeside Landing housing development, easy transportation access thanks to four-lane U.S. Highway 20, which was completed in 2018, an affordable cost of living. In fact, Calhoun County offers the sixth lowest cost of living among Iowa's 99 counties, based on data from the U.S. Census Bureau. And all of this fits with Calhoun County Economic Develop Corpor Development Corporations, that's CCEDC. It fits with their vision to connect businesses and communities with resources for success. CCEDC provides assistance to existing and prospective businesses and industries, entrepreneurs, local chamber of commerce slash development organizations, city offices, and nonprofit organizations in Calhoun County. Quote, our mission is to enhance business retention, startup, and growth to increase employment opportunities in the tax base, said Teresa Hildreth, who is the executive director of CCEDC. The CCEDC strives to be responsive to the communities, business leaders, and stakeholders the group serves. Quote, by pulling a diverse group of people together, we can develop a comprehensive plan that focuses on addressing big picture needs instead of getting lost in weeds, said Keaton Hildreth, who is CEO of the Calhoun County Electric Cooperative Association, or the ECA. Quote continues, planning becomes a team effort where new ideas can be shared and real solutions can be discovered with everyone's input. The need for additional housing as well as affordable housing was a major topic during the strategic planning session. It's something that will continue to limit the available workforce if this issue is not addressed, Hildreth said. The strategic planning session helped people who are working through similar issues make connections, provide advice, and share best practices. The fact that many people across the country, across the county rather, were willing to attend an in-person meeting shows a willingness to start the discussion, said Nathan Gentry, who is owner of Gentry Hardware and Gentry Restorations and Customs in Rockwell City. Quote, there are some tough discussions and hard truths that need to be addressed, and this is the doorway to those discussions, he said. It's valuable to connect with like-minded people who share your concerns and your goals. This reflects CCEDC's commitment to improve the quality of life in the local area. This focus is more important than ever, said Grebbing, who helped strategic planning participants explore what does economic development mean to you and shared data about current economic development priorities in Iowa. Quote, quality of life is leading more people's discussions about where to move and live, Grevin said. Iowa is not just a pass-through state anymore. 
Rural areas offer unique opportunities. Those opportunities include room for small and larger businesses alike. Consider the Calhoun County Business Park at the junction of Iowa Highway 4 and U.S. Highway 20. Our most recent data shows that 8,837 vehicles pass through this area each day, Hildreth said. That's up from 3,600 vehicles a day in 2012. Sparky's Convenience Store has carved a thriving niche across from the Calhoun County Business Park. In 2023, this area also attracted the Store on Four by Katie Lynn Boutique, which offers accessories, clothing, and gifts. This kind of catalyst effect drives the rural economy, grows the tax base, and helps unlock more resources to meet strategic goals like new housing options. Quote, Economic development is all about building relationships and connecting, Greving said. Collaborations and partnerships are vital for the future. These connections are essential in the post-COVID-19 pandemic world, Gentry said. The pandemic highlighted the necessity of knowing your neighbors and supporting your local business, he said. Growing these connections helps strengthen the county as a whole. Macy Shoon, Economic Development Coordinator slash Deputy Clerk for the City of Manson, is excited about the possibilities. She said the people who attended this strategic planning session had varying backgrounds and experiences, which created the perfect environment for brainstorming. It takes a cohesive team to move the county in the right direction. I think the leaders who attended this event are just the right people to do that. And then there are um, a number of photos of folks in attendance at this session sitting around at tables, and um, there's a shot of the speaker, and people are standing in groups having discussions. And the next article, Quality, Service, and Convenience, Daniel Pharmacy Celebrates 60 Years of Business. And there's a photograph inside the pharmacy, and um, there are one, two, three, four, five people with uh, John Daniel II. Um standing in the center talking about the anniversary. When John Daniel II and his father, John Daniel I, opened Daniel Pharmacy at the corner of Central and 12th Street in downtown Portage 60 years ago, they had a pretty simple business philosophy, quality, service, and convenience. We started it in 1963 with my mom, my dad, and myself, said owner and pharmacist John Daniel II during a 60th anniversary celebration Thursday afternoon. The milestone was marked with a ribbon cutting with the Greater Fort Dodge Growth Alliance and an open house. It's a real honor to congratulate you on 60 years in the Fort Dodge community, said Craig Schlyens, who is a Growth Alliance ambassador from Avela Bank. It's been such a blessing to have this wonderful family-owned pharmacy here and all the commitments you've made to the community of Fort Dodge your support for the school systems, and everything you do for the community. It's just a real blessing. Daniel and his parents, John I and Renee, opened the pharmacy in May of 1963, and it's been a family-run operation ever since. John Daniel II became sole owner in 1973, and today he runs the business with his wife Margot, son John Daniel III, and daughter Mary Kay. And then it shows a photo of Fort Dodge Mayor Matt Bemrick presenting John Daniel II with a proclamation honoring the pharmacy. And they declared 
December 14th, Daniel Pharmacy Day. And back to the article. As the only family-owned pharmacy in Fort Dodge, there's a fourth prong to Daniel Pharmacy's business philosophy, and that is caring. Quote, if you want to be a community pharmacy, you have to care about your people, care about your community, and we've tried to do that, John Daniel II said. One of the things that makes this so much of an enjoyment to people, or an enjoyment, is people come back over the years and say, when I was a little kid, I rode down here and got candy. Or they'll drive by and say, I still see your neon lights. In 60 years, Daniel Pharmacy has had three generations of customers and two generations of pharmacists. When you're part of the community, you just kind of feel like you treat everyone like family. You take the time to care and you get to know them by name, said John Daniel III. And then there's a photograph of a, an article, uh, an old newspaper clipping from May of 1963, inviting the public to the grand opening for the Daniel Pharmacy. And back to the copy, John Daniel II recalled that back when his sister Joan taught at the Pleasant Valley School, she would send her students with their school supply lists to get what they needed at Daniel Pharmacy. Running a pharmacy in 2023 looks a lot different than it did when Daniel Pharmacy opened its doors in May of 1963. One constant we had through all those years was adaptation to change, Don Daniel the, Don, John Daniel II said. We started out with typewriters, and then it was computers, cash registers, and then we went to point of sale. Now we have e-scribing and immunizations and things like that. To further commemorate the 60th anniversary of the business, Fort Dodge Mayor Matt Emmerich read a proclamation declaring December 14th as Daniel Pharmacy Day. The Daniels have received several accolades in recent years. In 2022, John II and Margot were named Grand Marshals of the Frontier Days Parade. Earlier this year, John II received the Distinguished Alumni Award from the University of Iowa College of Pharmacy. Um, and then there's another photo of an old newspaper clipping, an old yellow clipping encased in plastic, and it's an ad from 1966, celebrating the pharmacy's third anniversary. And we'll turn to just a couple of obituaries in today's messenger. Um, John or Joan Schaefer, age 91, funeral, 11 a.m. Monday at the Woodlawn Christian Church in Lake City. Visitation, 3 to 5 p.m. Sunday at the Lampy and Powers Funeral Home. Burial will take place in the Lake City Cemetery. Wendy Andrews, age 56, of Fort Dodge, died December 8. Private family services will be held at a later date. Memorials may be directed to the family at brucesfuneralhome.com. And Donald Campadilly passed away Saturday, December 9. Private family services will be held at a later date. Um, you can learn more at the website of Bowman. Funeral Home, that's Bowman, B-O-M-A-N-F-H dot com. And now we have some fresh sports stories in the Fort Dodge Messenger. Humboldt Girls Fight Off FDSH. The Humboldt Girls continued their winning ways against Fort Dodge here Thursday night, 44-39. Ava Fisher knocked down five three-pointers 
and scored a game-high 15 to lead the Wildcats to their third consecutive win over the Dodgers since the series resumed last year. Morgan Mann added 12 points with 8 rebounds and 5 steals for Humboldt. Um, Humboldt, who has won 5 of its last 6 around a loss to Algona earlier this week. Fort Dodge, 3-3, three three, was paced by Mackenzie McElrath's 10 points with LJ Mayle and Brooklyn Palmer, each adding 8. Mayle and Mia McCaleb both had 8 rebounds with Mayle adding 3 blocked shots and 2 steals. We just couldn't make a basket, FDSH head coach Scott Messerly said. Our defense was solid outside of a few instances where we let Fisher get open. We did a great job rebounding the basketball. We just couldn't make a shot. I told the girls after that that we did a lot of things right, and it just wasn't our night. The two exchanged the lead over the early stages of the contest before the Dodgers used an 8-0 run capped by a male triple to go up 10-6. Fort Dodge held a plus-six edge in rebounds over the first eight minutes, while the Wildcats keeping it close thanks to four made three-pointers, including a pair by Fisher. In the second, the Dodgers put together a 9-2 run to go up by six. Humboldt closed the gap again, taking the lead on a Reagan-Lee three-pointer. However, it was a Fort it was Fort Dodge that went to the break up that went to the break up when Palmer banked in a triple at the buzzer. It was good to see Brooklyn get going on offense, Messerly said. I thought Humboldt did a good job of taking LJ away and forcing us to adjust. We did that for moments during the night, just not enough of them. Mail had eight points and six boards in the first half before battling foul trouble in the second. During that time, Humboldt went on an 8-0 run to gain control of the contest, outscoring the Dodgers down the stretch to prevail. Lee finished with seven points, five rebounds. Mann added eight boards and five steals, and both Caitlin Nelson and Meg Zweibomber had five points. Fort Dodge heads to Marshalltown 3-4 and four on Friday night, while Humboldt hosts Hampton Dumont CAL, who is 2-5. Next up, Wildcat Boys Handle Dodgers. The Fort Dodge boys want to build a basketball program uh, predicated on defense. The Dodgers weren't nearly disruptive enough on that end of the court Thursday, as Humboldt dominated start to finish in a 74-53 victory. Normally known for their three-point shooting prowess, the Wildcats, 4-1 overall, instead attacked the basket relentlessly against Fort Dodge, 0-6, especially in the first half. Humboldt made 16 of its 25 two-point attempts, which is a 64% clip, in taking a 40-24 lead into the intermission. We have to give better effort and intensity on the defensive end. We have to, said Dodger head coach Willie Williams. This is a group that normally plays hard and tries to get stops, but it wasn't there last night. I give credit to Humboldt. I think that was the big takeaway. They were the tougher, more competitive team. We don't have the margin for error defensively to have as many lapses as we did, especially in that first half. Cone Matson ignited the early surge, with Fort Dodge doing a decent job slowing down top Wildcat scorers Evan Hatcher and Elliot Carlson. Humboldt's junior guard put his head down and drove to the hoop almost at will. Matson finished the first half with 
13 of his team-high 17 points, missing only one field goal try. Fellow guard Corey Detman was effective as well, adding nine of his 11 before the break. The boys did a nice job, said HHS head coach Jason Thurm. This is a busy week for us with big conference games on Tuesday and Friday. We came down here against a good 4A program in Fort Dodge, and we were locked in from the start. We anticipated seeing a zone, so when they came out in man-to-man, we were a little surprised. We don't really have a post-up game, so our goal is to get the guards into the paint and drive downhill. The opportunity to do so was there for us, and we took advantage of it, especially in the first half. The Dodgers were better offensively inside the perimeter, making 18 of their 38 shots, but misfired on 14 of their 15 three-point tries. They left us open, and we were basically, and they were basically baiting us to shoot more threes than we're used to taking. Williams said, "We have to do a better job of being aware of the opposition's game plan and making the necessary adjustments. Just because you're open doesn't mean it's a good shot to take. We have to know the difference." We kept Hatcher and Carlson in check for the most part, but didn't get the job done defensively at all against their other guys. Again, that's a credit to them. Fort Dodge trailed only 23-17 earlier in the second quarter, but a 10-0 Humboldt run got the visitors rolling. Matson had a pair of traditional three-point plays during the surge. A Detman hoop and free throw gave the Wildcats their biggest lead of the half at 40-22. and 22. Humboldt didn't just use its size and strength, but its depth to its advantage. The Wildcats got 19 points from their bench, spearheaded by spearheaded rather by 10 of those from six foot six senior Nolan Gustafson and a pair of triples by six two junior Jackson Dodd, compared to just two points by the Dodger reserves. The closest Fort Dodge got in the second half was within 48 to 34 on a bucket by junior Cade Westerhoff, who led the home squad with 17 points. Classmate Drake Warland added 16 for Fort Dodge with senior Ty Adams contributing 10 and sophomore guard Tyrell Mosley 8. Hatcher had 13 for Humboldt, well below his early season 26.3 average, 26.3 point average. Before Thursday, 48% of the Wildcats field goal attempts on the year had come from behind the arc. Against the Dodgers, only 16 of their 59 looks were from distance. Fort Dodge heads to the Roundhouse to face Marshalltown Friday at 7.45 p.m. Next story, Dodgers host Fort Dodge Girls Invite, and it shows a photo of uh, wrestling, a couple of girls. The Dodger Girls will host FDSH Girls Invitational on Friday. The third-ranked boys will entertain 16 squads for the Don Miller Invitational on Saturday, and the local kids' tournament will be on Sunday. The girls' invitational will begin at 5 p.m. tonight in the Dodger Gym. Fort Dodge will be joined by Algona, Eagle Grove, Emmitsburg, Humboldt, Clear Lake, Decorah, Carroll Kemper, Mason City, North Tama, Perry, Sioux Center, Spencer, Spirit Lake, West Fork, and Western Christian. The Dodgers are coming off two straight two-day tournaments at the Dan Gable Donnybrook and the Council Bluffs Classic. In Council Bluffs, 
senior Maddie Polis at 170, and fifth-ranked sophomore Mariah Benedict at 135, both placed fifth. Benedict enters with a record of 30-3 and and is now 59-16 and in her career as a Dodger. Poulos is 25-7 and and 43-15 and in two seasons. Sophomores Alejandra Manzanilla, 105, was sixth, and Gracie Harvey at 110 was seventh. It's going to be super nice to be able to not have to ride the bus or sleep on the bus, said Fort Dodge head coach John Koenig. We have that feeling of getting out of school and strapping it up and going to wrestle. We had a whole week off, and we were able to fix some things. Last year, the Dodgers placed 10th, led by champion Alexis Ross. Benedict placed 2nd. Our goal is to win as many medals as we can and try to get in the top 5 of the team race, Koenig said. This is big for our seniors, Maddie Macy, Araya Fellers, and Andy Barwin. This is one of the last times that they'll, they'll be in the Dodger gym. Last year, Algonan was fourth, and Humboldt placed sixth. Harley Tobin and Maylin Davis claimed titles, while Ryan Haynes and Gretchen Gorham were second. Humboldt's Sophia Harris was a champion, while Bailey Beers and Brooklyn Robinson were runners-up. Lily Locke was second for Eagle Grove, while Genesis Corrado and Jamie Anderson were both third. And a little time to go back to the Globe Gazette, and let's check in on My Pet World. Family helps dog adjust to sudden hearing loss. Dear Kathy, I wanted to share our story in response to the Shih Tzu, who suffered hearing loss after dental surgery. At the time, we had a border collie named Tanner, who was 15. He lost his hearing suddenly. We noticed him becoming depressed, sleepy, and unresponsive. We addressed this by using common sense and new rules. We flicked the lights on and off every time we entered the house. He quickly realized that this was our unique way of lovingly communicating with him. We sought him out from wherever he was to let him know we were leaving each time we left the apartment. He loved this. We gave him extra love and started incorporating many hand signals. He ate it all up gleefully. Tanner eventually overcame his depression and returned to his happy self. He loved it until he loved until he was 19, and we don't feel that he missed out on anything in his final year, and he actually got more attention and bonded with us on another level. The most important thing is that he was not lost in a time haze by losing track of whether we were home or not, letting him know each time we came or left so that he could do his job and greet us or depart us was essential. Thank you for letting me share my story. I hope it helps other readers. That's from Mary in Baltimore. And they write, Dear Mary, I love how you incorporated hand signals and use lights as departure and arrival greetings. And always let him know when you left so that he wasn't baffled over your absence. I bet you also use the outside light to signal him back into the house after spending time in the yard. Hand signals are a must for any dog who has lost his hearing. While they can learn hand signals at almost any age, even after losing their hearing, I often suggest that people train their dogs with hand signals from the very start, since this uh, would speed things along if they were ever to lose their hearing. And that's all the time we have today for this reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger for December 15, 
2023, only 10 days till Christmas. I've been your reader, Mary Frances. It's been my pleasure. Have a great day.